Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're discussing the future of Syria and its neighbouring states, Lebanon and Turkey, which are struggling to cope with millions of refugees from the Syrian conflict. Joining me on the line from Beirut is our correspondent there, Erica Solomon, and in the studio is Dan Dombey, who until recently was our bureau chief in Istanbul. Erica, Europe at the moment is very preoccupied with hundreds of thousands of refugees arriving from uh, from Syria. But in the neighbourhood, uh, there are there are millions and over a million in Lebanon itself. C- can you give us an idea of, of how they're coping? Of course, Gideon. Thanks. Um, yeah, of course, uh, a lot of people have been watching with fascination this wave of people arriving in Europe. But uh, for those who have lived in Lebanon or Turkey, it's actually a very familiar sight. Um, In Beirut, they've been dealing with a refugee crisis actually all over Lebanon since um, about 2012. Lebanon is a very tiny country next to Syria. It has about 4 million people. And right now, more than a quarter of their population is refugees, if you also include um, Palestinians who have been here since basically 1948. Um, Syrians alone make up probably about 2 million informally and over a million in terms of uh, registered UN refugees. Um, and it's it's a big problem. What began as something that was, in a way, welcomed by a lot of Lebanese, um, they have a tense relationship with the Syrian regime, has now become a burden. Um, anywhere you drive in Lebanon, you will see dozens of abandoned buildings full of refugees. You, you can't miss the site if you leave Beirut. And in Beirut, if you go into a construction site or any poorer neighborhood or a refugee camp, they will just be full of Syrians. It's a big burden as well on electricity, on water, um, all of these things, and it makes a lot of uh, resentment between both the Syrians and the Lebanese, and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a source of tension. And the Syrians themselves in, the, in uh, Lebanon, I mean, one of the points he made in the piece this morning in the paper was that these are the people without the resources to, to, to come to Europe, that, that many of them would love to if they could, but they simply lack the money or the ability to do it. Yes, of course. I think probably very few Syrians uh, who have come to Lebanon for refuge at this point would like to stay. If they could, I'm sure a lot of them would like to resettle in Europe, simply because there's just not enough humanitarian aid to, to really care for them. Um, part of that is political reasons. Um, the country here doesn't want to have an official refugee status given um, that would allow uh, UN, say, to form refugee camps. But a lot of it is because the international aid community is strained. Um, as you probably know, this is the largest displacement crisis worldwide since World War II. And there's just not enough money being given um, to refugee aid. So almost every month we journalists hear about some other um, form of aid that refugees used to count on that has been cut. So now most of them are relying almost completely on the food stipends that they get, money that they get to buy food. That's how they pay their rent, buy their children's clothes, get any school supplies. You can imagine that living on something like $20, $27 a month or less, it, it would be 
impossible anywhere in the world, including Lebanon. Now, Dan, a very grim situation there in Lebanon. I mean, you've been in Turkey for several years, um, seen this crisis build up. But I guess Turkey is a bigger country. Uh, it's, uh, what, close to 80 million people. So is it better able to cope? Is it co- and Presumably it's coping better. But has have you seen a visible impact on the society of, what is it, over 2 million refugees there? Absolutely. Uh It really puts things in context. I mean, Europe has been gripped by terrible images of the Syrian refugees in recent weeks, but nothing that Europe experiences approaches the scale of uh, the crisis in places like Beirut or or indeed um, in Turkey. It's a country of 77 million. There are 2 million Syrian refugees there. And you are very aware when you're in Europe that it is Darwinian survival of the fittest and richest who have made it here. In Turkey, Syrian refugees are everywhere, in every corner, in every shanty town, and all parts of society. The very poor, the absolute indigent, and the middle class people who have their iPhones, their apps, and the 2000 to $3,000 it might take to take that perilous cross to, uh, uh, across the Med to, um, or the Aegean to a Greek island. So you see that. You also see a Turkish state that really can't cope. They have excellent refugee camps in Turkey, uh, really very good and lauded uh, by the UN and other authorities, but they only could handle a few hundred thousand uh, refugees, which leads the others fending for themselves. So it is no wonder that there is this spillover of people into Europe, that there's this desperate push. They aren't people who are fighting for their lives anymore, but they are people who simply can't see a life for themselves in Turkey. In the meantime, Turkish society itself is changing. An influx of that many people, let's be honest, who are likely to stay for years, if not decades, is changing the society in a way that worries people who are already alarmed that the country was becoming a touch too Middle Eastern for their comfort. Changing the society by making it, what, more more Islamic? In in many ways. I mean, I think, first of all, there are people who have complained that their labour is undercut by Syrians working more cheaply. They are very largely um, Sunni refugees, you know, who come from a different kind of cu- uh, culture than Turks. You know, the Turks and Arabs are very aware of different differences. Uh, and there is this concern that Turkey is being drawn into the Middle Eastern conflicts for, from which it tried to stay aloof for decades through these huge moves of people and, of course, through the wars that have precipitated them. Now, I'll come back to Erica in a moment, but just one more question on Turkey. You mentioned the concern that Turkey will be drawn in. I mean, the Turks have now allowed their air bases to be used by the Americans for bombing in Syria. What is Turkish policy to, to Syria? What, what are they backing? What do they see the end game as? Turkey has long maintained that the only solution in Syria is the departure of President Bashar al-Assad, that that is the root cause of everything else, that his regime remains the most murderous force in uh, Syria with probably more deaths that it is accountable for than even the jihadis of the Islamic State. The trouble is, is that wishing Assad's departure and achieving Assad's departures are two very different things. The Turkish government still gives the impression that it sees Assad as a bigger and more immediate problem than ISIS. That's a point of difference with the rest of the world, with much of the rest of the world. And although it has finally given in to the US's long-standing demand to use its air bases for direct manned airstrikes against ISIS forces, its own priority is very much fighting the Kurdish 
militants who it's battling within Turkey. So, we'll... And hang on, the Kurdish militants are the allies of the US, so they're allowing the US to bomb one group while fighting another group who are the allies of the Americans. Well, this is entirely, this is entirely the tension that has yet really to work itself out, because what Turkey did in recent weeks was to give the US this green light to attack Islamic State. But what really mattered on the ground is that it's now carrying out scores of attacks on Kurdish militants, that there is a war in the Turkish and Iraqi mountains that's claimed the life of more than 100 Turkish security personnel, and that there is a brewing war within Turkey's own cities in the south and east of that country. If that second war gets worse, if the Turks are fighting more against the Kurds in the cities, if there's more cities put under martial law, then it is increasingly likely that the Syrian Kurds that the US allies with are going to be drawn into the conflict in Turkey itself. That will mean that this strange contradiction where the US is allied with its own friends' enemies will become increasingly hard to maintain. Well, it's a huge mess, obviously, Erica, and everybody comes back to the uh, truism that the only way out of this is to find some kind of political solution to Syria. But do you see any sign of new thinking on that front? Let me just say that before the the refugee crisis, if you will, that is unfolding right now in Europe became a preoccupation in the media and in the international community, there had been a lot of movement on the diplomatic side. People weren't totally sure what it meant, um, but we were seeing strange things that we hadn't seen in, a, in years, basically including reports that a Syrian official went to Saudi Arabia from the Assad regime, went to visit Saudi Arabia, which would be huge because Saudi Arabia's were supporting the rebels. There was an invitation from Russia that was accepted by the leader of um, the Syrian National Coalition, which is, you know, one of the international representatives of the Syrian opposition, Moscow being one of the international backers of President Assad. So we were seeing some interesting movements, and diplomats here were telling me this is something, this is important. No one's clear if we're going to get a change in views, but people want to talk, and that is always the first step. But now, um, I, I actually, it's not clear what happened to that because now, uh, as you've probably seen, there are increasing reports about Russia increasing its um, military and arms support to Syria. It always did, so it's really hard for outside observers to actually determine if Russia is increasing that support or just it's for whatever reason, regained attention in the public eye. But this has either way stirred up tensions that people were hoping to sort of smooth over for a bit so that the diplomatic discussions could uh, gain some steam. And now we're hearing again that those sort of, those sort of diplomatic pushes have subsided. So right now it doesn't look like there's anything new coming. But certainly I think the hope for a lot of Syrians is that the attention that their crisis is now getting through um, the movement of people to Europe could encourage some kind of solution. So I think you're probably right that it will encourage a, a new diplomatic effort. Perhaps we can end by just trying to hopefully sketch out some kind of endgame. I mean, the, the only one that even seems remotely plausible to me is the idea that maybe you can somehow persuade Assad to leave. That would then allow the West in good conscience to allow it to ally with the remaining Syrian regime to take on the Islamic State. Does that sound possible to you, Dan? I'm not sure it sounds possible, to be honest. I mean, I think there are elements there that people will be working on. They're obviously Assad himself 
is a huge block on anything happening. It, Erica is right. We saw some hopeful signs after the US and Russia had worked together on getting an Iran deal of Iran's nuclear program that this spirit of cooperation might go into other areas. And of course, there was a hope that Iran itself could behave a uh, major role. Let's not forget that Iran and Russia are the two countries that sustain Assad. So there was this kind of hope. There have been suggestions for a couple of years that a Yemen-style solution, remember the days that Yemen was seen as a country that had somehow been solved, in which the president left but the regime stayed, would give everyone enough of a fig leaf to come to some so-called deal. The reality is, is that, you know, Assad and his forces now only control about a quarter of Syria's landmass. So the idea that this state in some sense would be partitioned out now maps onto reality. There's all that kind of talk. Some kind of deal may yet be struck. We've had previous deals or so-called, you know, attempts at deals that have been fated at um, international meetings. But the simple fact is, to be absolutely honest, is that the state of war and disrepair that Syria is in is surely going to mean that these refugees, these millions of people, are going to be outside that country for years to come, causing all sorts of consequences in their neighbouring states and in Europe itself. Who can see? Who can foresee a Syria which will be safe to return to in the next few years? I don't think I can. Thanks very much, Dan Dombey, here in the studio in London, and thanks also to Erica Solomon on the line from Beirut. That's it for World Weekly this week. Until next week, goodbye.